0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is
1: advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Murder Memories, where the phenomenon known as Recovered Memories leads investigators to solve cold cases. In this episode... I'll tell you about a cold case that may never have been solved if the perpetrator hadn't begun telling friends and acquaintances about nightmares he was experiencing. Nightmares that he feared were actually long-repressed memories of one terrible night. This is the last chapter in the series, Murder Memories, The Case of Paul Cox. On January 2, 1989, Narayan Basetti traveled to the New York City suburb of Larchmont to check on his sister Shanta and his brother-in-law, Lakshman Rao Shervu. Lakshman Shervu, age 58, was the director of nuclear medicine at Albert Einstein Medical College in the Bronx. He and his wife had immigrated from India to Canada and then to the New York area, settling into their upscale suburban life in Westchester County in 1974. Shanta attended medical school and completed her residency as an emergency room technician before continuing on to a fellowship in geriatric medicine at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. They were hardworking and also close to their family and extended family. Their two children, both graduates of Princeton University, had since left home to begin their own careers and families, but were in frequent communication with their parents. The Chervous also had siblings and extended family, with whom they kept in close contact. So it was odd that no one had heard from the couple since December 30th. Bassetti, at first, might have believed that his sister and brother-in-law were just enjoying some well-deserved time off over the New Year holiday. But when he hadn't heard from them and couldn't reach them by January 2nd, he decided to make the drive to the suburbs to call on them. As he entered the two-story home located at 36 Lincoln Street, all was quiet. He called out, but there was no answer. In the back of the house, he noticed a broken window pane, and having a bad feeling that something was very wrong, called the police. When police arrived, they worked their way upstairs. In the master bedroom, they encountered a bloody scene. Blood was sprayed everywhere. It covered the walls, floor, and even the ceiling. Lakshman Shervu was found lying on his back with 15 stab wounds to his face and body his 51-year-old wife, was also dead. She was found lying across her husband's body. She'd suffered nine stab wounds. Both of their throats had also been slit. Lakshman's cut so deeply, he was nearly decapitated. There was no sign of the house being ransacked or any items stolen from the home. There had been no sexual assault. Detectives, upon questioning neighbors, friends, and colleagues, found that the Chervus had no known enemies or anyone who even disliked them. By all accounts, they were a wonderful couple with a loving family who were well-liked and respected in the community. Not much in the way of evidence was left at the crime scene. The murder weapon wasn't found, and there was only one partial palm print discovered in the home that couldn't be matched to anyone. While the Shervus family and the community grieved, the case went cold. In early 1990, Paul Cox, age 23, decided it was time to do something about his drinking problem. He'd recently been experiencing increased blackouts after nights and days spent binge drinking and finally admitted to himself that he needed help. Paul was born in 1967 to a prominent Westchester family. His grandfather, Joseph Vander Newt, was formerly superintendent of the town of Mamaroneck. His father, Frank Cox III, served as vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. Paul grew up with six siblings in Larchmont, New York. His mother Mary, a homemaker, had her hands full raising six children, but it was her fifth child, Paul, who was the most challenging. He found himself in trouble at an early age, stealing money from his parents to buy candy to share with his classmates when he was just in the first grade. By grade three, he was stealing from his classmates as well. He had a poor academic record, and later it would be discovered that Paul had an undiagnosed learning disability. By his first year of high school, Paul had flunked nearly all of his classes. His parents responded by removing him from the public school and sending him to an all-boys private school. He was so unhappy there that he attempted suicide by overdosing on Tylenol. Paul's parents tried to get help for their son, sending him to a psychiatrist for treatment, When he was in his mid-teens, the psychiatrist reported that Paul exhibited matricidal and patricidal tendencies. Paul was a teenage ball of rage, and he blamed his parents for all his problems, perhaps typical for a frustrated and likely spoiled young man who was underperforming in school and having trouble in social situations. Paul was able to graduate from high school and then decided to enlist in the Air Force. Things did not go smoothly in the military. He threatened suicide and was discharged from the service. Floundering, Paul enrolled at St. Thomas Aquinas College in New York, but only after one semester, he dropped out. In his short time at the school, however, he received a reputation as a hardcore partier and even ran for class president and won on a, quote, partying and flunking out platform. The truth was, Paul had a substance abuse problem before he was even in his teens. By the sixth grade, he was already drinking to mask his feelings of inferiority. By the time he reached college, he was abusing several other substances including cocaine and mescaline, although alcohol was still his drug of choice. After flunking out of St. Thomas Aquinas, he tried one more school, enrolling at Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina in 1988. But by the end of the semester, he received his grades and once again was failing most of his classes. It was right after receiving this news that Paul returned home to New York for the Christmas break. Arriving in Larchmont, Paul called up some old friends and went on a binge, partying every day until the night of December 30, 1988. On that evening, Paul and two friends attended a keg party in the neighborhood. By 11 p.m., the party was all but over, as they had run out of beer. Paul had also drank hard liquor in the form of kamikaze shots throughout the evening. He and his friends then went to a nearby bar and continued drinking until closing time. At 2 a.m., Paul got behind the wheel of his mother's car that he had borrowed. His drinking buddies piled in to be driven home. Paul was very inebriated by this time, and on a country road outside of town, he lost control of the vehicle on a curve and slammed into a guardrail. Everyone was okay, but the car had sustained damage. Unwilling to take the chance of a cop coming along and submitting him to a breathalyzer test, Paul decided to walk the rest of the way home. His friends decided to go the other way to return to the bar, where they could call another ride. The next thing Paul remembered was being woken up by his mother banging on his bedroom door. She'd just gotten a call from the police about her abandoned car that appeared to have been in an accident. Groggy and tired, he gave her an excuse about a flat tire and went back to sleep. On January 2nd, Paul Cox was watching the news on television when the murder of the Chervous was reported. It caught his attention because the address of the home where the murdered couple was discovered was familiar to him. 36 Lincoln Street had been his childhood home. His parents had sold the home to the Chervous in 1974 when Paul was just seven years old. Paul called to his parents and they watched the report, shocked to hear of the tragedy in their former home. By 1990, Paul Cox had decided to seek treatment for his alcoholism. His girlfriend suggested he attend a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Most commonly known as AA, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, by Bill Wilson and Bob Smith as a self-help group to support alcoholics get and remain sober. Built on the tenets of community and mutual support between members, all who have struggled with alcohol abuse and addiction, AA has chapter locations worldwide. Currently, there are more than 120,000 AA groups meeting on any given day that serve over 2 million members. The name Alcoholics Anonymous refers to the fact that members are to strictly adhere to rules of confidentiality. Members share only their first names and anything learned inside group meetings is forbidden to be shared outside of the group without the person's permission. On November 11th, Paul Cox joined Alcoholics Anonymous. There he found the support and encouragement he needed to stop drinking. He would report that after joining AA, he stopped drinking and was able to remain sober for good. Once he'd quit drinking, Paul said it felt as if he was achieving clarity for the first time in his adult life. As if emerging from a fog, he began to recover memories of his past behaviors while under the influence. Paul began to work through the 12 steps of the Alcoholics Anonymous program. Every member begins with step one and works through each sequentially. Step one is admitting that you are powerless over alcohol and that life has become unmanageable. Step two and three introduce the spiritual aspects of the program. Each member must come to believe in a power greater than themselves and make a decision to turn their will and lives over to the care of God. AA is not religion specific and members are free to identify God or a deity of their own choosing. At first, Paul wasn't comfortable with the spiritual structure of the program. Talk of God and a higher power made him uncomfortable. But since he was able to abstain from alcohol for the first time in his life after he began attending AA meetings, he decided to stick with the program. After several months, Paul reached the fourth and fifth of the 12 steps. These steps required members to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves and admit to God, to themselves and others, the exact nature of their wrongs. It was in the time leading up to, and especially while working through Steps 4 and 5, that Paul said he began to recall vivid memories of his past wrongs. These vivid memories were about him committing a violent act, a murder to be exact. As time went on, and these dreams became more real, he came to believe that he actually had committed a murder while in an alcoholic blackout that he was just now becoming conscious of. According to a 2003 report, by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, a person can experience an either partial or complete alcoholic blackout. These are periods of memory loss for events that have transpired while a person is under the influence. Blackouts happen to some people who consume alcohol in great quantities, but not all experience this. Those that do are more likely to have a blackout after consuming large amounts of alcohol rapidly, sometimes called binge drinking. These impairments in memory are said to be a result of disruption of activity in the hippocampus of the brain, the region that plays a central role in the formation of new autobiographical memories. In essence, a person experiences periods of amnesia while in a blackout, during which time they continue functioning, walking, talking, even carrying out complex behaviors like driving, but they do not create memories for these events. During one type of alcoholic blackout, called N-block, these periods can last for hours, with the person losing large chunks of time where no memories are formed. Now, Paul said, memories were coming back to him in a series of flashbacks that terrified him. One night, after leaving an AA meeting, he drove to his girlfriend Jessica's house. He told her that he was now sure he had murdered the shervus during an alcoholic blackout in 1989. He broke down in tears while relating this to her. Jessica told him she couldn't believe this was possible and suggested he speak to his sponsor. AA members are encouraged to have a sponsor, a seasoned AA member who is assigned to help new members work through the 12 steps and support them in staying sober. Paul now called his sponsor, known only as Mr. C. A note, all the AA members in this episode were allowed to keep their names confidential to respect the rules of the organization. The court records only identify them by their last initials. Later, Mr. C. would testify that Paul had called him one night and seemed very upset. To lighten the mood, Mr. C. had joked, It couldn't be that bad, could it? You didn't kill anyone, did you? There was a long pause at the other end of the phone before Paul responded. What he told his sponsor next would shock him. Paul and Mr. C. would meet and talk several times, and over the next few days and weeks, Paul shared more details, finally sharing the entire incident as he remembered it. Paul Cox now remembered the rest of what had occurred on the night of December thirtieth, 1988. After he'd crashed his mother's car and parted ways with his friends, he began to make the short walk back home through Larchmont. Cox now believed he had been experiencing an alcoholic blackout and had instinctively walked to his childhood home, located at 36 Lincoln Street. Once there, he broke a window to gain entry. Entering the kitchen, he picked up a knife and made his way upstairs to the master bedroom. He recalled sitting at the edge of the Shervu's bed, waking Shanta Shervu. When he saw that she was awake, Cox began stabbing her. Lakshman then awoke and Cox turned the knife on him. There was a terrific struggle with the Shervus fighting desperately for their lives. When they had stopped struggling after being stabbed multiple times, Cox slit both of their throats to assure himself that they were dead. Before he left, he would attempt to clean up the crime scene, wiping away any fingerprints or evidence that he'd been in the home. He then walked home. When he'd seen the news reports of the murder, it hadn't jogged his memory of what he'd done, Cox said. It wasn't until later, when he started to have vivid dreams, which he then realized were flashbacks, that he began to recall the details of that night. Cox began sharing the story in more detail over several conversations with his sponsor, Mr. C. His sponsor thought that Paul should seek out someone else's advice, and because he felt he needed to keep his confidence to adhere to AA rules, he asked him if he could share the information with another senior AA member, Mr. O. Cox agreed. After hearing Cox's story, Mr. O encouraged him to seek out either a private detective or an attorney— but Mr. O thought it might be wise to ask his father first, who was an attorney and also an AA member. His father didn't have any advice beyond telling Cox to stay sober and continue attending AA meetings, but Mr. O encouraged him to hire a criminal attorney. Cox eventually spoke to attorney Andrew Rubin, who told him to get into therapy and stay sober. He also told him not to talk to anyone else about the murders. But over the next two years... Cox told at least four more AA members about his responsibility for the murders. Still, no one informed the authorities. In December of 1991, Cox moved into an apartment with another AA member that he'd befriended, Mr. R. Soon after they became roommates, Cox told him about a dream he'd had about committing a murder and waking with bloody clothes. Later, he would share more of the story, admitting it wasn't a dream, but it actually happened. Mr. R. would later say that Cox described the killings in, quote, great detail. In January of 1993, Cox was interviewing a potential new roommate, Ms. H. He told her that there was something he needed to tell her if she was to be his roommate. He then proceeded to tell her about a recurring dream that had begun helping him piece together an incident from a couple of years earlier. Not only did he give Ms. H. details of the murders, he went on to tell her that he'd return to the scene of the crime the next day with cleaning supplies to get rid of any evidence. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd hightail it away from a potential roommate who confessed to a murder whether I believed him or not. Can you say wacko? At least that would have been my first thought. But Ms. H. did move in with Cox and Mr. R. in February of 1993. She would not live there more than a couple of months before she came down with an illness that would cause her to vacate the room and move home to be cared for by her parents. But she continued to think about what Cox had said, and it bothered her enough to bring it up to her therapist in May of 1993. Her therapist advised her to notify the police. She met with a police officer from Americ. In her report, she stated that Cox had told her, quote, he had killed two people in the house he used to live in when he had a flashback of abuse. He went in and thought he was killing his parents. He made mention of going back to clean up and that he had buried the knife he used, She also gave police the names of several other AA members she believed Cox had also confessed to. The Larchmont police were contacted and they began an investigation. Larchmont investigators interviewed the AA members who Cox had spoken to. When they found that the details Cox had told them matched what they knew about the murders, police arrested him on May 20, 1993. Once in custody, Cox's prints were taken. The one palm print found at the crime scene matched Paul Cox. After more than four years, the Shervus children, Arate and Arun, finally knew who was responsible for the murder of their parents. When they discovered that more than half a dozen people knew who the murderer was for more than two years and didn't report it, they were incensed. I find it shocking that it was common knowledge among all these people, Arati Johnston said. We suffered for years, not knowing what happened to my parents. Paul Cox was indicted on four counts of second-degree murder, two counts for intentional murder, and two for depraved indifference murder. The following month, Cox's parents put up a $250,000 bond, and he was released from jail to await his sentence. He was required to remain under electronically monitored house arrest at his parents' home. Cox's attorney, Andrew Rubin, had his work cut out for him trying to come up with an effective defense. The versions of the crime that Cox had told several people all matched, That fact and the palm print discovered at the crime scene was irrefutable evidence that Cox had committed the crime. There was no denying it. So Rubin presented a case for temporary insanity in his opening arguments when the trial began in June 1994. He told the jury that Cox had been in a psychotic state when he'd entered the Chervus' home in 1988. A psychiatrist took the stand to tell the jury that the defendant had been experiencing a severe alcoholic blackout when he'd committed the murders. Dr. David Weber explained to the jury that, quote, the most typical behavior during a blackout is finding the way home, unquote. Cox, the defense told the jury, had snapped after a lifetime of being pushed by his parents to succeed. He had been emotionally neglected by his mother and father, his defense claimed, and had turned to alcohol to mask his pain. He'd finally struck out in anger during a blackout, traveling back instinctively to his childhood home. He thought he was killing his parents, the doctor explained. It was if, quote, he was going back in time and eliminating the people that he sought to blame for all his problems, unquote. To be found legally insane, the defendant has to prove that one, he or she is suffering from a mental disease or disorder, and that two, this disease or disorder suppressed the ability to understand that his or her actions were illegal or immoral. Eleven of the twelve jurors decided that the requirements for the insanity defense had not been met but the 12th juror thought that mental illness might have impaired Cox's judgment. No matter how much the other jurors went over the evidence as presented at trial, she refused to budge. She told the rest of the jury that she harbored doubt that Cox had even committed the murders, although the defense had admitted he had. After seven days of deliberation, the jury had to tell the judge that they were hopelessly deadlocked and a mistrial was declared. The case was retried with the second trial beginning just four months later. This time, Paul Cox took the stand and tried to gain the jury's sympathy by describing a life which, I guess, he believed was one of abuse and neglect. But his claims of being shamed by his parents about his constant bedwetting, he said he had been humiliated when they made a reward chart for him, posting a gold star on the chart for each night his bed remained dry, fell flat with the jury. He also told of having to take unappetizing sandwiches to school, how his siblings forgot to wish him a happy birthday, and that his parents sometimes missed his sports games. None of this impressed the jury as particularly abusive. It was true that Cox's learning disability had been left undiagnosed. This had caused him to fall behind in school, for which he felt ashamed. It was also true that he began drinking alcohol at a very young age, and that his parents hadn't been aware of the problem until much later but they had tried to get him help whenever a problem cropped up. They had enrolled their son in a private school when he needed extra help and was flunking out of high school. They'd sent him to a psychiatrist and hired a therapist when he became depressed and suicidal. They'd also supported and encouraged him when he flunked out of one college after another. The prosecution didn't buy Cox's poor little rich boy story and told the jury an alternate theory. Their theory of the murder was that Cox hadn't been in a blackout at all. They argued that he was a thief with a long record of petty crimes. He had a history of breaking into nearby homes to steal. This time, he'd chosen the Chervoo's house, and when Shanta had awoken before he'd gotten away with any valuables, he'd panicked and stabbed the couple to death. The jury rejected the insanity defense and voted to convict. However, they decided that Paul Cox had committed the act under extreme emotional disturbance a mitigating factor, so found him guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter in the first degree. He was sentenced to two 8.5 to 25-year sentences to be served consecutively. But a controversy sprouted when AA members were subpoenaed to testify at Cox's trial. His defense attorney argued that the communication between Cox and other AA members should have been considered privileged, as Alcoholics Anonymous was not only a religion-based program, but that its members participated under an assurance of confidentiality and anonymity. The AA members who had been called to testify at Cox's trial were allowed to keep their last names off the record. The judge in both trials had thrown out this argument and allowed the confessions to be admitted into evidence. Now this would be the main argument for appeal of Cox's sentence. Specifically, the conviction would be appealed on the grounds that his confessions to fellow AA members fell under the cleric-congregant privilege, recognized by the state of New York. Legal precedents for this argument were set when the court had, in the past, treated AA as a religion. For example, it had been ruled unconstitutional for a convict to be forced to attend AA meetings as a condition of his parole. The court ruled that, quote, the Constitution guarantees that government may not coerce anyone to support or participate in a religion or its exercise, unquote in effect, declaring A.A. a religion. The federal judge ruled in Cox's favor. A.A. could be considered a religion, he decided, and as such, the confessions were privileged. His manslaughter conviction was overturned. But Westchester County District Attorney Janine Pirro wasn't about to let Paul Cox off that easily. She had already tried him twice, winning a conviction on the second go-round. Speaking out in the media in opposition to the federal judge's ruling, Hiro said that Cox's confession to his friends, who were fellow AA members, was akin to, quote, going to church and having a cup of coffee later with someone, and saying, by the way, I killed two people, and calling that privilege communication, unquote. She kicked up the issue of privilege to the U.S. Court of Appeals. The court looked at each confession made by Cox to determine if they should be considered privileged. First, they determined that to be considered inadmissible by the court— The conversations in question had to be held in confidence and for the purpose of obtaining spiritual guidance to meet the legal definition. Cox had first confessed to his girlfriend, Jessica. The court considered this to be an emotional outpouring to someone within a romantic relationship, not a plea for spiritual guidance. He'd also confessed to his AA sponsor, another senior AA member, and the senior member's father. Each of these conversations, the court ruled, were also not undertaken for spiritual reasons but were focused on receiving practical and legal advice. The four other members who he'd spoken to were all friends, who he'd told for various reasons. One of them was an AA member who had shared that he'd previously been involved in gang activity. Cox wanted to know if he ever killed anyone. The court determined that this conversation was undertaken by Cox to communicate with someone he hoped could relate to what he had done. Cox then went on to speak to him about his fears of going to prison. Nowhere in this conversation did he ask for spiritual advice or guidance, the court pointed out. In summary, the appeal court's ruling was that Cox had spoken to other AA members, quote, primarily to unburden himself, to seek empathy and emotional support, and in some instances to seek practical guidance, such as legal advice, unquote. They ruled that privilege didn't apply in this case and overturned the previous appellate court's decision. Barring any further appeals, Cox will serve out his entire sentence. A spokesperson for Alcoholics Anonymous went on the record to say that AA was not a religion, but instead identified it as a spiritually guided self-help group. Members in response to this case would admit to being shocked that what they shared in AA meetings wasn't legally protected. They had been under the assumption that they could unburden their souls to their fellow members and would be protected should they admit to bad acts they may have committed in their past and shared in confidence within the group. But legal experts would explain that no state legislature had yet extended to self-help groups run by laypeople the kind of privilege accorded to certified therapists. Even therapists are required to report certain confessions by their clients. A therapist is not required to report past illegal behavior a client may reveal, but there are exceptions. In most states, information about child abuse and elder abuse must be reported by law, no matter when it took place. But there are a couple of other details about this case that we must discuss before we end this episode. First, I'll take up the idea that Paul Cox continued to argue on appeal that his conversations with other AA members should have been inadmissible because he'd confessed in pursuit of spiritual guidance while working through AA's 12 Steps but step eight requires a person to, quote, make a list of all persons harmed by our actions and become willing to make amends to them all, unquote. If Cox's goal was truly to make amends for his past offenses towards others, wouldn't he have confessed to the shervu's family members as well as the court and accepted his punishment without equivocation? It's something to think about. Finally, we have to ask ourselves the question, was Paul Cox in an alcoholic blackout or not? While studies show that a person can carry out complex behaviors while experiencing a blackout and not store memories for those events, it is another matter entirely to consider that Paul Cox not only carried out a double murder, but then cleaned up the crime scene afterwards. By his own admission, he wiped down areas where he might have left fingerprints, and did a fairly good job of it too, since only one palm print was found that was then used to convict him. Even more chilling is the fact that he also said that he'd also disposed of his bloody clothes and thrown the murder weapon, the knife, into a body of water to get rid of it. He also told another person that he had returned to the scene of the crime the next day to make sure no evidence was left behind. If this is true, then it is almost certainly not the case that Cox had experienced a blackout while committing the murders and definitely not true That he hadn't recalled anything about committing the murders before becoming sober and having flashbacks. Also, if he didn't store the memories of the crime while he was committing them, how then was he able to remember the details later, and in such great detail? This is a question for a brain scientist, and I may be a lot of things, but that's not one of them. But it would be interesting to know if this is even possible. Perhaps it was simply an increased guilty conscience that Paul Cox began to experience once he became sober that caused him to confess so many times. Maybe he thought by unburdening himself, he could live with what he had done without having to face any legal consequences for his actions. Dr. Arun Shervu, the Shervu's son, would thank the jury for voting to convict his parents' murderer. He would also thank the AA members who would testified at both trials. What they did, he'd say, was in support of what was right and moral, even if they were reluctant at first to report what they understood to be confidential. We still have faith in the justice system, Dr. Shervu would say. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank this month's new Patreon supporters. Thank you to Philip Hodson, Jesse Lyon, Miranda Lewis, Luigi Coliani, lisa s anthony medrano Veronese torres rita bell jen tysick trisha duffy marcia case lisa tulio heather Hoffner, napusha Rollox, heather dunn melissa epperson ayla taylor samantha height chris thresher rebecca presley kate kairit julie rich monica simmons laura godar courtney momocha danielle taylor penny sullivan S. Vaidya, Joyce Ferris, Stephanie Orr, Monica Sanchez, Crystal Brookstresser, Alyssa Sarbouski, Zoe Shaver, and Christy Turner. You guys rock, and your perks are on their way. We do a drawing each month for a prize pack that goes out to one Patreon supporter. To be entered in the monthly drawings, you just have to be a current patron at any level, with levels starting as little as two dollars per month. And this month's winner is. Davin McCoy. Congratulations, Davin. I have some cool true crime merch as well as some OUAC swag going out to you. And thanks again for supporting the show through Patreon. Speaking of patrons, if you are one, please make sure to check your account to see that your email address and mailing addresses are listed correctly. If you've moved or changed your address for any reason, make sure to update it on Patreon. Some perks have been returned for a bad address, and we really want to get those out to you. Just go to patreon.com and look under profile settings to update your shipping address and email addresses. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.